Thanks for checking out this sermon from Redemption Church in Seattle, Washington, where we're enjoying Jesus, loving people, and making disciples. If you'd like to learn more about redemption, you can go to redemptionchurchseattle.com. Or better yet, come be our guest on a Sunday here in Green Lake. It's an exciting day for us because we're starting our uh, new series today in the Sermon on the Mount, looking at Matthew chapter 5 through 7. And this sermon is also in a condensed version in Luke, but we're going to be focusing just on Matthew and what he has to say about Jesus's sermon. And it's going to be somewhat interesting as we walk through this over the next eight weeks, because it's really us giving, us as pastors, giving sermons on a sermon which is kind of strange, but it's a little bit Inception style, you know, like the movie, like Dreams Within a Dream, but unlike Inception, this should make more sense at the end when we get to it. I'm just kidding. I love the movie. If you haven't seen it, you should watch it, but the big idea over this entire sermon, these entire two chapters that we're going to see unfold over the next several weeks is really this. It's really a captured vision from Jesus of what it looks like to live the Christian life. That's really the question that it answers as we go through. If you've wondered, what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to actually live out my faith? What does it mean to live this Christian life? This is really what Jesus hones in on, focuses in on, and shows us throughout this sermon that he gives on the mount to these disciples. And so that's what we're going to see. And I think that this has the potential to be an incredibly, I'm not just saying this, I think this has the potential to be an incredibly fruitful series for our church and for you individually as you live out your life day today. Here in Seattle or wherever you're from, I think this has that potential, but I also think that it has the potential to be very challenging for a lot of us. Because although this is arguably the most well-known sermon of Jesus, I don't think that means that it's necessarily the easiest to accept or to humble ourselves to or to live under. Because Jesus has some pretty straightforward things to say. He tells the truth. He doesn't shy away from it, and he challenges us in a lot of the ways that we think and a lot of the ways that we live, and that's what he's going to do in this series. A lot of people are aware of this sermon. Um, Many Christians, we would say that this sermon is incredibly important, and so this this sermon's really well-known. Even Gandhi um, said that he read his Sermon on the Mount and that it really inspired the way that he lived much of his life. And you would talk to a lot of people, and they would say, oh yeah, the Sermon on the Mount, that's something that Jesus had to say. But over the next several weeks, what we really want to do as a church is we want to deeply immerse ourselves into the text, not just look at it from simply a surface level and say, here are a few good things and just take those away, but what is Jesus really getting at? What is Jesus really getting at and what does he want us to take away here? And this is true for us if you're a Christian in here today, and if you're not a Christian in here today, Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for taking the time, whether you're investigating what does is, what is this whole Jesus thing look like? What does Christianity really look like? I've heard different things, but I'm really not sure. I would, I would encourage you with the same thing. Jesus has several things that he really wants to say because he really cares. He really cares. He cares about you, and he cares about the way that you live your life. And so as we go through this, we'll be thinking through that mindset because we believe, right, church, that by the power of the Holy Spirit who's in and around us, we believe that this passage, that this Word of God that we're going to look at has the power to actually change us, to continually transform us, to make us more like Jesus. We believe that, right? Absolutely. 
And so we should be excited about this series because although it's going to challenge us in a lot of ways, it has this amazing power that only the Word of God has because it comes directly from God, inspired by God, without error, to transform us. And so let's not check out. Let's stay tuned in and let's take this with us, these chunks of passages with us throughout the week and reflect on them, continually asking Jesus, what, what do you want for me? What do you have for me? This is so important. It's such an important sermon. It starts on a mountainside, as we're going to see, as Jesus gathers his disciples and he begins to teach them. And we're going to cover a lot of things um, over the next eight weeks. We're going to look at what does it mean to judge someone? And, and I probably shouldn't do that. And what does Jesus have to say about that? What does it look like to deal with money? And, you know, money can lead, tend to lead to greed, and uh, that's probably not good. So what does Jesus have to say about that? What does it mean to deal with my neighbors, even somewhat difficult neighbors, and enemies? How do we navigate those relationships? There are a lot of things that Jesus has to say that we're going to look at, and we're going to start today in the Beatitudes um, as Jesus shows us what it means. He starts to show us what it means to live as God's people. Now, if you read this entire sermon, these two chapters, you could do it in about 10 to 15 minutes. For those of you that are able to read, I almost said read good. Um, for those of you that are, and then I just did say it. For those of you that are able to read well, um, you, you'd probably do it in 10 minutes. For me, who is in a special program called Chapter 1 in third grade, which I thought was an advanced reading program, come to find out years later, it was the opposite. Um, it'd probably take me 15 to 17 minutes. But the point is here that Jesus had a lot to say during this Sermon on the Mount. And he, and he, and he most likely, obviously we could agree, he had, he had more to say than just 10 to 15 minutes worth of, of talk. And so really the way to look at this correctly is to see that Matthew is really distilling a lot of these big ideas, the words of Jesus. He's bringing this down into thoughts and into realities that we can reflect on, that we can think about, that apply to our lives. He's distilling this. And so that's the way that we'll look at it. And that we're forced to ask that question continually, am I living as the person God has called me to be? And so as we jump into the Beatitudes, I do want to make it clear though, this is not, hear this, this is not instructions for how to become a Christian. Okay? This is not instructions for how to become a Christian. If you'd like to know more about that, we'd love to talk with you about this. But instead, this is a description of what the Christian life looks like or should look like. Um, and so it does. It answers this question this morning. Think about this in your head right now before we jump in. How do we, church, how do we as people who have been rescued by God live in such a way that honors and glorifies him with all of our life? It's a big question. It can be very uncomfortable at times. But this is a question that we're going to wrestle with a bit. And we're going to trust that the Holy Spirit's already before us, that he's within us, and that he's moving, and that um, God is good. And so even though sometimes we hear things that are challenging, they're very good for us as we seek to become more like Jesus. All right, so if you have a Bible, you can turn here, Matthew 5. It's also going to be up here on the screen, as you can see. And there's a Bible right in front of you, um, a red Bible. And I'm sure many of you have phones, technology. Um, we're going to start in verse 1, okay? So here's how this starts out. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying... So Jesus, he gathers the disciples. He goes up onto this mountain. You can see the scene. There are a lot of people there coming around, and he is going to teach them. Now, over the next several verses, as he starts out this teaching, he's going to use this word over and over and over again. He's going to say, blessed, blessed, 
blessed. And what does he mean by that? What does the word blessed mean? Now, some people would say, well, blessed just means happy. But really, that's not an accurate depiction. That's not an accurate description or definition of what blessed means here because um, that's simply a state of emotional being. Jesus is getting at something much deeper here as he says blessed eight times. What he really means, if you want to think about it this way, is when Jesus says blessed are those who, what he's saying is imagine the father really looking at the children and delighting in them. The father looking at the children with acceptance, with delight, with a smile on his face. And so as Jesus says blessed, he's really saying, as you live in the way that God intends you to live, this is how the Father looks at you. This is how I look at you. This is how this Holy Spirit is not grieved within you, but instead delights. That's really a better definition of blessed as Jesus goes through this. It's not just about emotions. It's about much more than that. And so he uses this word blessed, and as we go down, he's going to list um, this group of people, and he gives this one group of people many different characteristics. Now, it would be easy to see these as different groups of people. Okay, blessed are the poor in spirit, that's one group of people over here. Blessed are those who mourn, that's one group of people over here. But what we need to see is he's talking to one group. He's talking to believers. And he's saying these are characteristics of the Christian life. So it's not different groups of people who act out in different ways. Some mourn, some are poor in spirit, some hunger and thirst. It's, it's, no, this is, this is one group. But really Jesus is outlining, okay, what are these characteristics of this group of people called Christians who believe in me, who have taken on my life? And so um, that's what Jesus does here. And what we quickly start to see is, is we're going to walk through this. And we see these characteristics of those who are blessed, as Jesus says that these are incredibly different from what our culture would call blessed. What we've called this series is flipping culture because that's exactly what Jesus is doing. He's coming in and he is turning traditional culture on its head. And he's saying essentially, you've heard this, I'm telling you this. This is who culture would say is blessed, here's how I'm telling you you're blessed. And it's going to be very different. It's going to be very different. It's essentially what it means to live counterculturally. And that's going to carry throughout this entire message. What does it mean to live like a Christian um, who doesn't live outside of culture? Because we, we don't do that. Some people have bought into that idea that, well, as Christians, we should live outside of culture. And that doesn't work out well because we end up becoming those who live outside of culture and just point at those who are doing things that we may not like or may not agree with. And so we just point our fingers. And so we live inside of culture, but it doesn't mean that we aren't different. In fact, as, as believers, as Christians, we should be incredibly different in a lot of different ways. We should have a different set of values. We should think differently about the way that we treat people. We should think very differently about even injustice and what that looks like. We should think differently about what we're living for, who we're living for, how we're living. All of these things come along with Jesus. And if we don't understand this or we refuse to accept this countercultural call, that's on every Christian's life, then we really haven't heard the words of Jesus or we haven't accepted what he has to say, that we're now a new creation, that we put off our old self and we put on Christ. And so as Jesus lays out these Beatitudes, here's what we're going to see in the first half. Um, it's going to be all about how we relate to God. So let's jump in, okay? Verse 3. He's gathered. He's starting to teach. He says this first. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are those who are spiritually poor. That's an interesting thing to say. Now, in Luke's gospel, he would talk about material, being materially poor. And so you say, okay, what do we do with that? Luke's saying, hey, blessed are those who, are, who don't have much. And it seems like Matthew's saying here, hey, here, blessed are those who are spiritually poor. And we would say that, hey, the good news of the gospel applies to both, right? <laughs> the good news of the gospel, it's good for those who are materially poor. It's good news. And it's good for those who are spiritually poor. This text and what Matthew's saying here, we're going to focus on what it means to be spiritually poor. It's kind of an interesting thing. We really don't like the idea of poverty. So what does Jesus mean here? Well, it's really important that Jesus starts here because as you're going to see, there's a clear logic in what Jesus is teaching, and it's all going to come together in a way that makes complete sense. But he says, you're blessed when you realize how poor you are. What he means here is that you are blessed, the spiritually poor are blessed because they know how absolutely bankrupt they are before God. That there, no amount of morals, no amount of good deeds, no amount of good works can come before a holy God and live up to some standard that God would say, absolutely, that's, that's good and that's righteous, come on in. In fact, let's just bypass Jesus. Absolutely not. The spiritually poor are those who would go before God and say, all I have to offer you is my sin. All I have to offer you is a broken life. I don't have anything that's good in and of myself to give you. And I'm coming just like a poor child would, really begging for food, saying, would you please give me something that I know I don't deserve, but my hands are empty. That's who the spiritually poor are. And that's where it has to start. Because if you aren't spiritually poor, the rest of this, ah, just push it off to the side. It has to start with this type of humility. That's what it looks like here. You're blessed when you realize how poor you are. I rarely carry cash. Um, I, just, I just don't. I use a card almost all the time. But I was at a gas station um, not that long ago and buying incredibly healthy gas station food for lunch. And um, I happened to have cash in my pocket, so I decided to go ahead and, and use cash. But um, the, the total came up, and I was a few cents short. And maybe you've seen this, you know, at a gas station, you walk up there, and there'll be a little cup or something, and people have, like, put pennies or, or dimes or nickels. Sometimes you'll find a quarter, which, if you find that, just take it, and I'll leave it. Um, <laughs> that's free money. But it's, it's the kind of that idea, you know, um, that idea of, you know, take a penny if you need it, and then leave one so somebody else can take it, Right? And so a few cents short. And unfortunately, I think that a lot of us, we, don't, we, we wouldn't say this, we wouldn't really admit this or talk about it out loud, but I think a lot of us can approach God like that. You know, God, I've, I've got about $1.75, and I think it takes about $2 to get, to get in and be good with you. And so Jesus, if you just give me that last quarter, I think I'll be good. I think I'll be good to go. Because I've done these works, and I've done these good things, and I served this much, and so really I've, I've built up a lot of good stuff. And so Jesus, if you could just meet me here and give me kind of that last nudge forward, I, I, th- I, th- I think I'll be good. And I think that's how I can approach God sometimes. I can try to add up in my mind or all the good things that I've done, and really what, what I need to realize is, man, no, no matter what I've done, none of it, none of it measures up to what Jesus has done. And so the spiritually poor person, they don't come just saying, hey, can I, can I just borrow a quarter? But the spiritually poor person comes and says, I need all of it. I need everything. I know that in and of myself, if I don't come to grips with this reality of my sin, with this reality of falling short, 
with this reality that I've been created by a holy, rich God, and I don't have anything to offer that's good to gain entrance into a relationship with him or into entrance into heaven, eternal, uh, an eternity with God, then we'll ultimately be separated from God. And that's the truth of what the gospel has to say. So that's why Jesus says, blessed are the spiritually poor. And what I would ask this morning is, have you come to this place? And so as we go through these, I didn't say this, but I meant to. I would encourage you, you don't have to, but I would encourage you, each one of these Beatitudes really comes with a question. So I'd encourage you to jot it down or put it on your phone and really go back this week and think about these things. Is this how I'm living my life? Is this an area where God needs to work on me? Is this an area where I've just been rebellious and I need to repent and I need to, I need to walk in the light? But this first question that comes with, blessed are those who are spiritually poor, is have you come to this place? Do you understand that your life, apart from the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, his perfect life, that you can't be good enough to be accepted by God? Have you come to that place? Or are you still trying and just asking for that quarter? Only those who are spiritually poor and come to Jesus with open hands and desperate hearts will see the kingdom of heaven. That's what Jesus is saying here. Then he goes on, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now this shows that blessed absolutely doesn't mean happy, because that would be weird. Blessed are, uh, happy are those who are sad. You'd be like, ah, that doesn't really make sense. That's absolutely not, not what God means here. And it also doesn't mean mourning in the sense of um, mourning over those who have died, mourning over those who have lost their life. Um, that's not what Jesus is pointing at either. It's really a different kind of mourning. We know that it's not that type of mourning. Blessed are those who mourn. That's, God doesn't love death. In fact, death was never how it was meant to be. So that doesn't make sense either. So what kind of mourning is Jesus really talking about here when he said, blessed are those who mourn? What he really means here is this is the kind of sorrow in mourning and weeping that happens over our own sin and the sin of the world. Blessed are those who see themselves as they ought. Blessed are those who, when they rebel against Christ, who gave his life for them, it actually affects their heart. Blessed are those who actually shed a tear over their sin. Blessed are those who look around and they see a culture which takes lives and they're actually affected by it. Blessed are those who see the injustices that happen every day in our world and don't simply turn off the TV and go and do something more fun, but actually mourn over it, feel something, or are affected by it. Blessed are those who are not robots walking around in this world short of feelings, short of emotion, but when they see something horrible happen to someone else, when they pass by a homeless person in front of the grocery store, when they see a single mom who's barely getting by, when they go and serve at Aurora Commons and they interact with our unhoused neighbors, are actually moved because Jesus is moved. Because this is who Jesus came to save. Not blessed are those who come in on a Sunday morning and we do a service and we sing songs and then we just go out and we live our lives and we come back and we try to get filled back up. But during the week we haven't done anything for anybody and we really don't care about anybody else except for ourselves or except for what affects me. And I'm preaching to myself. But what Jesus is saying is no, blessed are those who when they see their sin, they hate it and they're torn up over it. And they're actually shedding a tear over it because they know how holy God is. And when they see the sins of their neighbors who aren't in relationship with Christ and the injustice done to all sorts of people who are less, who are less well off, blessed are those who actually care. 
Blessed are those who look around and things matter because they'll be comforted. Because they will actually be comforted. We love grace. We talk about grace here every week. But one of my fears is that we would misinterpret or distort grace in such a way that we would no longer feel when it comes to our sin. That we would instead just say, well, there's grace, and so I don't need to look at any sin anymore in my life. I've got grace, so I can go do whatever I want. I'm covered in grace. We really live out the life that um, the church did when it said, should we sin all the more so that grace would abound? And what does Paul say? Absolutely not, because Jesus died for it. So let's not distort grace and misuse grace to stop feeling when we actually sin and rebel against God. We should feel that, because Jesus felt it on the cross when he gave up his life and he bled. And so a church like ours, which preaches grace every week, which is amazing, am I right? All right, right, everybody's on board with that, like, "Uh, yeah, please tell me that's good, especially after what you just said. Yes, we love grace, but we need to understand that grace came at a great cost. And when we diminish our sin, we diminish the cross of Christ. Let us actually not give lip service, but instead let us understand exactly what we've done. We don't have to sit in it, but we do need to come to grips with it. Do you mourn your sin and the sin of the world? That's the second question here. Do you mourn your sin and the sin of the world? Does it matter? Or are you able to just go on without feeling anything? What is the comfort offered here? Because it says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Well, the comfort, <laughs> the comfort offered here is beautiful. It's the comfort of God's forgiveness. Not your good works plus a little bit of forgiveness, but being able to walk out of here this morning with the truth, the absolute truth, that as you walk out of here this morning, if you have a relationship with Christ, no matter what you've done and no matter what you will do, that you're absolutely forgiven. And what I would say is what's more comforting than that? And so this is supreme comfort that's offered here. For those who realize what they've done, God reminds us of what Jesus has done that we don't have to carry that weight with us. We don't have to take sin and go to despair and condemnation, but we take sin and we go to realization, mourning, but then appreciation for what Jesus has done. And we're comforted. And we're comforted. This next one, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. What is meekness? It's not a word that I use a ton, but what what is meek? I would say this, for most of us, it would be easy for us to come this morning, and even as we had that time of confession, as Alex walked you through that, it'd be easy for us to say, yes, God, I've, I've sinned. I know that I'm sinful. I confess that sin. But then if I'm here with a headset on, and I said to you, you all are sinful, you'd be like, whoa, who do you think you're talking to here? Here's the thing. It's easy for us to accept things about ourselves on our terms, God, I know I'm sinful. I know that I've, I know that I've done things. I, I, I know the thoughts that I've had this week. I know the actions that I've had. And you would go out of here, and if somebody approached you right outside, which, which I, I wouldn't necessarily recommend, but if they said, hey, you're really sinful, you'd say, hey, come over here. We need to have a gospel conversation. I need to talk to you for a minute. The idea of meekness here is really interesting because I don't think it's something that we practice a lot. Here's a good definition of what meekness looks like. This is from Martin Lloyd-Jones. Martin, I can never say his name right. Martin Lloyd-Jones. There's that reading practice coming in. He says this, Meekness is essentially a true view of oneself being expressed in attitude and conduct with respect to others. It is therefore two things. 
It is my attitude toward myself in the expression of that relationship to others. So essentially, the meek person doesn't push back when someone has something true to say to them. The meek person doesn't push back when somebody in your life group says, hey, I'm really concerned for you. I think that you're caught in sin. You don't push back and say, how dare you? Look at the sin in your life. Why don't you worry about yourself? Instead, the meek person says, what do you have to say to me? What can I hear from you? And how does a person do that? Well, the person has a realistic view of themselves. They don't see themselves as way up here. They also don't see themselves as way down here, but they see themselves with a realistic view. That you're flawed, that you're sinful, that you aren't perfect, that you don't have it all together. It's so hard to act like you have it all together. I have tried for years and years and years, up until probably a couple months ago, to be honest. Um, you, You try so hard to act like you've got it all together. You try so hard to live up to other people's expectations. You try so hard to be in in such great control. You try so hard, and you know what ends up happening? Is you end up just living a two-faced, two-person life. And that is what culture will beg you to do, so don't miss that. It will beg you not to be meek. Culture will beg you to have a public profile where you look a certain way, where you have achieved certain things, where you look all good and shiny, but inside you're dying. Inside, you're broken. Inside, you know that you are not who this is. And that's so easy to jump into because that's what culture wants. Culture says, hey, just fake it till you make it. Culture says, hey, you just be you. Just look as good as you can. Get as much as you can. Do as much as you can. And Jesus is saying, no, that's not really a good way to live. That's that's really what it means to be double-minded. That's what it means to have a dual life. That's what it means to really live with different masks that we put on. You know how tiring that is? Can anybody relate with me? Anybody ever been there where you feel like you're putting on different masks every day? Where you're one way with the people in the church. You're one way with your coworkers out there. You're one way with your neighbor. You're one way with your wife. And you know what you end up having? Personality disorder. And it ends up, (laughs) it ends up crumbling because that's not the way God intended for you to live. Meekness, the ability to actually say in front of God and in front of others and in front of yourself, I don't have it all together. I'm redeemed by the personal work of Jesus, and thank goodness for that, but I don't have it all together, and that's okay to admit. It's okay to admit. And so what I would ask you, even with this question, are you living authentically in front of everyone, no matter who or where? Are you the same person? Because Jesus wants you to be. He's not asking you to be two different people. Jesus never did that. You notice in Jesus' ministry, he never wore two masks. He was the same with everybody. And yes, it led him to the cross. It doesn't mean it's the easiest thing, but that's exactly what Jesus was. It's exactly what Jesus was. The most consistent critique of Christianity is that people, is that, is that these people think that they're better than everyone else. It's the most consistent critique of Christianity, is when those outside of the faith would look at us and they would say, I think these people think they are better than everyone else. There could be nothing more countercultural than for Christians who walk out into the world, into our neighborhoods, into Green Lake, declaring that we know we aren't better that we know we're flawed, that we know we're imperfect, but that we have a Savior who's redeemed us and who's been gracious toward us. Imagine the impact that this type of humility makes on a culture. Peace that comes from admitting you aren't perfect. 
But the reality is in the new heavens and new earth, we won't have to worry about that. And that's great peace that can come. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. We're getting through this. I know that there's a lot here, but blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Okay, what does this look like? What, it, it means ultimately that what we want more than anything is what God wants. This is a tough one. This sits right to the heart. What we want more than anything is ultimately what God wants. I was talking with a friend not that long ago, and we were kind of recounting our Christian faith and, and experience, and, and we were going back, and we were thinking about um, different things. And what, what came up with both of us was kind of this distinction that we both saw in our lives. This isn't true of everybody, but in our lives at least, there seemed to be this distinction between when we prayed a prayer when we were younger and when things actually changed for us and we got new desires, <laughs> when we actually wanted what God wanted for our lives, when we were willing to put aside ourselves and say, God, what's your will for me? And that's really what it's talking about here. Those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Now, uh, I don't know, parents, you've probably been in the car with kids, and kids will yell out from the back, like, I'm starving, right? Just in that voice. Or, I'm starving, um, boy and girl, right? And uh, in couples, you've probably been in the car, and, and you know, your, your spouse has yelled out, I'm starving. Or I've been in the car by myself, and in my head, I'm like, I'm starving. Um, here, here's the thing, though, even though I ate 45 minutes ago. Um, we, we don't really know, thank goodness, we, we don't really know what it means to be starving. At least I would say most of us don't. We don't understand what it means to really hunger and thirst for nourishment. But in Jesus' time, people did because there were famines. They knew what it meant to absolutely hunger and thirst after something, food. And what Jesus is saying, in that same way that you would be sitting there and saying, I don't know if I can go another day without water. I don't know if I can go another day without food. I desperately need this more than anything. Jesus says, blessed are those who would sit there and say, I can't do another day without you, Jesus. I can't do another day without you changing my heart. I can't do another day without spending time with you. I don't want to do another day without you changing or showing me the will that you have for my life. That's what it means to hunger and thirst after righteousness. To want Jesus more than anything else. Now, is that easy? No. But Jesus is saying, blessed are those who do this. Blessed are those who strive to be more like me. Blessed are those who would put aside their own will and say, God, what do you want for my life? Blessed are are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be satisfied. What are you hungry for this morning? Seriously, what are you starving for this morning? Is it more comfort? Is it more safety? Is it more money? Is it more prestige? Is it more status? Is it authority? What are you really hungry for? This is something that we need to constantly ask ourselves. What is at the core of our desires? Is it wanting God more than anything in his kingdom, or is it something else? And here's a spoiler alert. If it's anything else, it will not satisfy you. That's why it says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst, for they will be satisfied. The only thing that will truly satisfy your soul comes from the God who made your soul, who created you, and that's a relationship with him. And that is humbling yourself to his will for your life, no matter how hard it may seem, and it may be very hard, but that's where you'll find satisfaction. Day by day, day in and day out, saying, Jesus, I need more of you. I want more of this, but I need more of you. That's what it means to be satisfied. And so I hope you've seen the logic here. Let me just walk through it real quick. I want you to see the logic of the order so far that essentially we come before God acknowledging that we have nothing to offer, only our sin, empty-handed, 
And we mourn over that sin because we know what it costs Jesus. We know what it costs God. And then we turn from that and we say that we're okay acknowledging that before God and before others and before our, ourselves, that, that we're not perfect, that we don't have it all together. And we realize and we come to this grip of our desires being changed by God to be more hungry and thirsty for him than anything else. And Jesus says, really, you're blessed when your life reflects this. This is what it means to live the Christian life. And then he jumps in and he says, now take just a quick shift and let me show you what it means to not only live the Christian life in relationship with me, but now in reaction to your relationship with me, in relationship with others. And in verse 7 he says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but our culture is not a merciful culture. It's not. It's bloodthirsty. We're not merciful. Philip Yancey, he was a Christian author, he said this, and this shows this. He said, I left the church, which he did for some time, I left the church because I found such little grace, and I returned because outside of it I found none. To those who show mercy, what God is saying is you will receive mercy. To those who show forgiveness, you'll receive forgiveness. You cannot be a Christian and not be willing to forgive. Do you know that? God has some things to say about that. Jesus has some things to say about that. Are you someone who shows mercy? Is there someone that you need to forgive today? This is a hard one. Because I know some of you, your parents, not great parents. Some of you, people in your family, have hurt you emotionally, maybe spiritually, maybe physically. Is there someone that you need to show forgiveness to today? And that doesn't mean that they're going to accept it. That doesn't mean that everything's going to be all better. That doesn't mean that you're going to just go on living and say, well, that's just completely done with and that has no effect whatsoever. No, that doesn't mean that. So, so it's not what I'm saying. But is there someone that you need to forgive today? That's what it means to show mercy. It's not easy. It costs us a lot. It's messy. But Jesus is saying, I want you to be merciful. This is what I want for you because this is what I've done for you. Blessed are those are merciful. Someone you need to forgive. God is merciful. We must be too. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Jesus emphasizes throughout his ministry the difference between, or the, the um, inward purity, essentially over ceremonial purity. And so what does he mean here by pure in heart to your neighbor? Well, the pure in heart are completely sincere. That you would be completely sincere. That you wouldn't be two-faced like we talked about. That Jesus wasn't two-faced. And so that you would be the same person, that you wouldn't wear a mask. Again, it asks and it begs kind of the same question that we asked before. Are you authentic with everyone, no matter who or where? Are you sincere with your neighbors? Do they know that they're getting the true you? For you shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. We're called to be peacemakers, not troublemakers. I think we know that. At home, in our church, in our job, in our city, we're called to be peacemakers, to live at peace with everyone as best as we can. Ultimately, Christ died to make peace with us, and now he calls us to live peacefully with others. But here's what this doesn't mean. This doesn't mean ignoring your neighbor, right? This doesn't mean what our culture would say, or Seattle would say, uh, let me translate this, blessed are those who keep to themselves. That's not what it means here. To be a peacemaker doesn't mean you ignore those around you. It means that you 
You seek to make peace, even though that is a difficult task, because peacemaking is a difficult task, and it's oftentimes painful and very costly. Think about it. Apologizing is painful. Have you ever had to do that with a spouse or a friend or someone you loved or a kid? Have you ever had to apologize to a small child? That's, that's painful as an adult. You're like, oh man, I'm sorry. It can be painful making peace. I mean, imagine the broken relationships that some of us have in this room. Imagine how painful it's going to be to try to make peace. And I'm sorry to say this, and and I would mourn with you over this. Some of you will try to make peace, and the other person just won't accept it, and you'll have to live with unresolved peace. And I hate that, but we should be those who strive to make peace, not the ones on the other side that say, I refuse to make peace. I reject you. I refuse to make any peace. God's saying, no, no, no. Blessed, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Because this absolutely points to what Jesus did at such a great cost. That what he intended to do, that why he came, why he left his throne, why he came to earth, lived a perfect life, went to the cross, took on our sin, died, was murdered by us, by sinful, unpeaceful people, people at unrest. This is what Jesus did. He did all of that to make peace so that we could be called the sons and daughters of God, so that we wouldn't be abandoned spiritual orphans running around with no hope today saying, I hope I can live forever here on earth because this is all I've got. Instead, Jesus came down and he gave himself up to make peace at the greatest cost. So as humans in our day-to-day, would we seek in all of our relationships as best we can to make peace with those around us because we remember constantly every day the links that Jesus went to to make peace with us. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Now Jesus finishes by going from peacemaking to the persecuted. Look at these last few verses. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. That my account is important. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So why does Jesus go from peacemaking to persecuted? Well, here's why. Because he knows that if you're going to live a faithful life that's being poured out for him, and you're hungry and thirsty for righteousness, people are going to say all kinds of things about you. Have you ever experienced that? Have you ever experienced that in your day-to-day? I know some of you have. In your workplace, maybe it hasn't been the easiest because you've actually, you're, you're a Christian, you don't, you don't do certain things. You don't say certain things. You, you have a different mindset. You have different desires, and you get flack for that. People around you think you're crazy. Some of you, that's happened in your family. Your families think you're nuts because you actually believe that Jesus died, and, and you, you base your life on that and your eternity on that. And they're like, why are you living in this way? Why are you giving yourself to Christ? That doesn't make any sense, and you get flack. Or your family even might just kind of disown you or kind of push you off to the side and say, that's not what we believe. At least in other countries, that's what happens. It's what happens in a lot of cultures. Somebody will become a Christian and their families will literally excommunicate them, have nothing else to do with them. Having a relationship with Jesus costs something. If it doesn't cost you anything, watch out because you probably don't have a relationship with him. Seriously, not to freak you out, but having a relationship with Jesus will always cost you something. It will cost you your own pride. It may cost you your reputation. It will cost you running at the same speed and living at the same pace sometimes as others around you. 
It may cost you getting to certain levels in your life, whether that's a job or wherever you may be. But having a relationship with Jesus is costly. That's why he says, if you're going to be my disciple, it's going to cost you. It is. Do you know that those who were closest to Jesus, these apostles, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all these apostles, it literally cost them their life. They were martyred. And they were Jesus' closest disciples. So this whole health and wealth junk that's not found in the Bible, discard it. Throw it away. It's ruining your life. It's a lie. It's from Satan. It's not true. That's not what a relationship with Jesus looks like. That's not his kingdom. He ushered in a new eternal kingdom, the kingdom of God, and he's saying, guess what? You're going to be servants. You're going to put away everything that everyone else around you, your culture says is important. You're going to live for something different. You're not going to fish for more money in your bank account. You're not going to fish for higher prestige. You're not going to fish for more followers on Facebook. You're not going to fish for all of those things. Instead, you're going to go fish for people. You're going to go pour your life out for the lowest of the low. You're going to go pour your life out for your neighbor. You're going to pour your life out for your spouse. You're going to pour your life out for them because I've poured my life out for you. So now you pour it out for me because this is just a short, temporary time that we're here. And what comes next is phenomenal. It's called the new heaven and new earth where we're going to be with our Savior as sons and daughters of God. And it's going to be phenomenal and amazing. But while we're here, it's not going to be so easy. It's going to be costly. But I promise you, as God promises you, so not just me, it's going to be worth it. That's what it means to be a disciple. And that's what God has called every single one of us to. None of us get an out on that. If you're going to claim Christ, you're going to have to claim all of it. It's tough words. It's tough for all of us. But it's out of love. It's absolutely out of love. Absolutely. It doesn't mean that we rejoice in the mistreatment of ourselves. We're not masochistic. That's not what this means. But we rejoice. How are we able to rejoice? Because we know that if we face persecution, we know who we're being persecuted because of. Because of the God that we refuse to walk away from. Because of the Savior that gave his life for us. This is the power of the transformation that comes with the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. That he took on our hunger and thirst for evil. He took on our pride. He took on our lack of humility. He took on our impurities. He took on our merciless nature. And he covered us with his blood so that we could walk in newness of life. This is what it looks like to be the people of God, and it is completely countercultural. It's flipping culture on its head. So we've read through these, but in Seattle, here's what it would look like this morning. In Seattle, blessed are the rich. Blessed are those who have no issues. Blessed are the bold and courageous who get ahead no matter what. Blessed are those who have more money than everyone else. Blessed are those who are well-fed. Blessed are those who can create something that no one else could create and find their identity in that. Blessed are those who keep to themselves and don't bother anyone. Blessed are the popular. You see, there's a collision course that's taking place with what Jesus says and what culture says. Culture will tell you that you're blessed if you're this, that, and the other. And Jesus says, no, this is what it means to be blessed if you're going to be one of my disciples. This is what it means to be blessed. And so what it really comes down to is where we started this morning. And, and this is good news. This is what Jesus wants. This is what it means to live the Christian life. And it is a, it's totally worth it. It's totally worth it. If you're in here, if you haven't given yourself to Christ, and I know that's not an easy thing. That's not like this just, but if you haven't, would you see how good he is? 
that Jesus came down, he preached this sermon, he said a lot of, he said a lot of things, and he preached this sermon, he preached this message, and he, God gives us his word, and it's not because it's some made-up hocus-pocus. This is true, this is real, and there's, there's no, there, the stakes couldn't be any higher. It's your eternity. The question is, what are you going to choose to believe? A lot of other religions, a lot of other different beliefs, it is that whole like, hey, I've got about $1.75 and I need a little bit of help. It's about you earning your way. It's about you being good enough, right? A lot of people in culture would say, yeah, I'm, I'm inherently good. Then they would point to, okay, who's not good? And, and it, would, it would be Hitler. <laughs> That's not the reality here, is that Jesus is saying, you need me completely. So if you aren't a Christian this morning, would you see that this God, the Creator God, He's a loving God. He's not going to hold you at ransom. He's not going to take you and, and just put your face to the coals. No, Jesus already took on the punishment for you. What he has for you is grace. What he has for you is a new life. And it's going to be completely different than the old life, but it's going to be completely good. So would you give yourself to that? It takes faith. That's it. It takes faith. Can't figure it all out. The equation won't always work out. It's not the easiest. But man, God is good. And the proof of that is in what Jesus did and what he gave. And so the question that we leave with this morning, and we're going to look at a lot of things over the next weeks, and I hope that you join us and invite other people, but will we live like our culture or will we be Jesus' people? That's the last question. Am I going to live like culture commands or am I going to be Jesus' people? Blessed are those who choose Christ.